The following audio is from Maranatha Chapel, located in San Diego, California. For more information about Maranatha Chapel, please visit www.maranathachapel.org. Our Bible study tonight is going to be in Mark's Gospel, uh, chapter 11, as we're making our way through. And so the title of our Bible study tonight is Cursing, Cleansing, and Covenants. Cursing, Cleansing, and Covenants. This portion of Scripture takes place during what we call the Passion Week. This is the the days that lead up to Jesus' crucifixion. His dying upon the cross, his being buried, and then raising from the dead. This is the story. This is where Christmas begins, and this is where it ends up. This is where Jesus is intending to, to, to deal with your sin and my sin, in all honesty, the sin of the world. This is his appointment that he's not going to miss, that he is going to encounter. And and what we're really seeing is the way his his people, the nation of Israel, dealt with him. And and you and I may may read this, and it has a, a narrative and a historic value to it, but it also speaks to you and to me. We see him cursing the fig tree. Again, the tree that was from the Old Testament representative of the nation Israel. We see him cleansing the temple, that is, driving out those who who were making religious business. And then ultimately, we see him pointing towards a new covenant. And what I want you to think about tonight is that this pertains to you because instead of rejecting Jesus, you have received him. Instead of going to a temple, you are a temple. Instead of looking forward to a new covenant, you are in the new covenant. That's what we're going to remember tonight when we, look, when we take communion together. This is Passion Week. This is a week that begins with glory. We looked last time at the triumphal entry, if you were here, where Jesus came in and the crowds worshipped him. Really, what's happening is, is that a whole nation is coming together in Jerusalem, specifically the temple, because this is the Passover. They come, and as they come up uh, Mount Zion, as they come up to the, to the city, they're gaining elevation, and they're worshiping. They're singing psalms from the book of Psalms, Psalms of Ascent. They're singing them together. They're celebrating. They're remembering when God delivered a nation from Egypt by his mighty right hand. As a matter of fact, the terminology God used is, I carried you out on eagles' wings. There was nobody who could stop you. This is the way the week begins, Jesus Jesus coming and the people crying out, Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. It begins with them going and taking branches and waving them back and forth, singing and celebrating, taking off their outer garment, laying them on the ground before him, a sign, a sign of their allegiance to Jesus, the King. But this is also a week that ends when this king, when God in the flesh, will wear a crown of thorns. Again, a symbol of mockery because he claimed to be king and Roman soldiers not having anything to do treat him with being very wicked and evil. And they take a crown of thorns and they place it upon his head and they push it into his skull. They give him a robe and a scepter and they again, in mockery, they worship him. It begins in glory And it will end with the mockery of the Gentiles against Jesus. 
This is a, a, a week that begins on a Sunday, Palm Sunday, and it'll end with Passover on Friday. At the end of the, on Sunday, at the end of the day, Jesus, and I want to read this to you here in a moment, Jesus ex- accepts the worship of the people, the religious leaders challenge him, he really deflects their challenge. He, at the foot of the hill, looks over the city of Jerusalem. He weeps. He weeps. He laments. At the very conclusion of the day, he goes into the temple, into the city, into the temple. He looks around, and then he leaves. And that's what's laid before us. It's important to know that the religious leaders, specifically the Pharisees, the Sadducees, and the priests, have already rejected Jesus. And and when I say that, I mean the leadership. Not each and every priest, not each and every Pharisee, not each and every Sadducee, but the body, body agrees to scheme against Jesus, to reject him. As a matter of fact, the people who worshipped him on Sunday, the triumphal entry, finalize a plan to murder Jesus. It motivates them to, now that he's here in Jerusalem, they're going to kill him. But I also want you to remember this. They are not in control. God allows this. This is his intent and his purpose that he will die. The Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Those in power, the religious leaders, represent Israel and they scheme to kill the king. They do not receive him. And as I was thinking about this for a little bit, I was thinking that if you study the Old Testament scriptures and you look at the history of this nation, this was consistent with their behavior towards God. That from time to time they would turn their backs upon him even though he had given them everything. He had given them, he had delivered them from from Egypt. He had brought them into the land. He gave them the land. He gave them the temple. He gave them everything, and yet in time they would turn their hearts away from him. You see a quote on the screen where it says, Jesus was rejected by those he came to save. Jesus was rejected. That is, those he came and revealed himself to would turn away from him. Those he came to save. John's Gospel opens with these words in John 1.11. It says, He came to his own, and his own, did not re- his own people did not receive him. He came to his own, and his own people did not take him. This, this comment from John is supposed to make us think, but, but wait a minute, wait a minute, this isn't right. God becomes a man. He comes to rule and reign in, in the hearts of his people, and they reject him. They want nothing to do with them. It's supposed to make us wonder, These people who needed a king in the worst way, but those he came to rescue, have him crucified. And this is the tension of the story of the gospel. This is is what you and I wrestle with. This is what we think about. How God in all of his goodness gives us everything and the opportunity to either receive him or to reject him. He does not force himself upon us. I believe one of the reasons, again, you'll see on the screen, one of the reasons this is so is because man doesn't want a king because man wants to be king. Man really doesn't want a king. He wants to be the king. And when we see man's response like this, we see his resentment to God's plan of salvation. So tonight we'll see that as Jesus and his disciples are walking from Bethany 
probably a couple of miles to the east of Jerusalem, there on the Mount of Olives. They head west, they go down into the Kidron Valley, they come up and they enter into the eastern gate. And as they're going on this one particular day in our first section, Jesus will see a fig tree and he will go to the fig tree looking for fruit and it won't have fruit and he will curse it. And then we'll also see that Jesus goes into the temple and he cleanses it. And then lastly, we'll see that he points to a new covenant. So let's go ahead and begin by looking at verses 12 through 14. Jesus curses the fig tree. Now on the following day, this is the day after the triumphal entry. This is the day after Palm Sunday. On the following day, Monday, when they came from Bethany, where he was staying with his friends, likely Mary and Martha and Lazarus, it says that he was hungry. Here, my friends, we see his humanity. That Jesus is, is he's, he's, he's left, he's going into the city. Again, it's a short walk. The disciples are with him, and it says that he was hungry. And seeing in the distance a, a fig tree in leaf, this is important to understand, Mark tells us that it was in leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it, any fruit on it. And when he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And then Jesus does something very interesting. He speaks to the tree. He's not talking to the disciples. They're there with him. He probably moves off the road a little bit to get near the, the tree. He searches around. You imagine his hand looking through there, finding nothing. Remember, he's hungry. And then he speaks to the tree. And what does he say? He says, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. And his disciples, the twelve, those who were close with him, those who had come and journeyed with him for three years, it says that they heard it. Each and every one of them heard what Jesus said. The idea that the disciples heard Jesus' words suggests that our narrative is a lesson. It's a lesson. The narrative itself is intended to be instructive. Jesus looks for fruit, but there is none. Then Mark helps us out, helps the reader out by saying it's not the season. Now, if you remember back in our introduction, I'm sure you don't, Mark is writing to Romans, to people in Rome. And so he'll be, he'll, he'll, he'll from time to time explain the story, explain what's going on for those that were not familiar with Israel. The other thing that's important to remember is that, that Mark is taking Peter's account of the gospel. And so sometimes when we read these stories, there is a, a flavor of the first person because Peter was here. He helps us by saying it was not the season for figs. In Israel, a fig tree could have crops three times a year, depending on the rainfall and depending on the weather. So then when he would see the leaves, he would expect there to be fruit, but there was no fruit. The lesson assumes the reader understands that the fig tree is also symbolic of Israel. Remember, the disciples heard it. Those, those who read this story initially would have understood that the fig tree was a picture of the nation and the people of Israel. From Hosea chapter 9, verse 10, Hosea the prophet says this, God's speaking God's word, God's speaking through him. Listen to these words. Like grapes in the wilderness, I found Israel. Listen to this. Like the first fruit on the fig tree in its 
in its first season or its first crop, I saw your fathers. Then again, this should be on the screen, Joel chapter 1, verse 7. It has been laid waste my vine and splintered my fig tree. My fig tree, God is saying of Israel, my fig tree. It has stripped off their bark and thrown it down. Their branches were made white. I don't plant gardens. I don't plant flowers. That's something that my wife does. Springtime will roll around, and actually, actually throughout the whole year, she'll, Wanda will either go over to like the Home Depot or Lowe's or a nursery or something, and, and these, these cute little plastic containers begin to show up in, in, in my garage or in the area, and I know, I know that she is going to plant something, and she knows them by name. I don't know anything about them. She knows that this kind of plant grows at this time of the year, and, and she changes them out. It's like, it's like they have an expiration. They look fine to me, but it's time to go. I mean, if you don't produce, you're on your way out. If Jesus could speak to a fig tree, as we're going to see at the conclusion here, and it withers away, it would wither away because I would forget to water it. I don't know if any of you can relate. If I was responsible for a plant, it would either have too much water or it wouldn't have enough water. And let me tell you why it would have too much water. Because I would forget one day, and I figured if I gave it twice as much water the next day, I would make up for that. I don't know if you work the way I work, but that's the way I cover my bases. But Jesus, in speaking to the fig tree, is also speaking to Israel. But remember, the lesson wasn't for the people, it was for the disciples. Because we're moving towards Jesus revealing to them that there is going to be a new covenant. There's going to be a new covenant between God and his people that God will establish. And the whole story has a momentum heading in that direction. There's something I want you to think about. From time to time, through the study in the Gospel of, of, of Mark, we've said that the people expected this of Messiah. They expected him you know, to act a certain way and to come from a certain place and be of a certain tribe. Our story tonight reveals to us that sometimes God has expectations of his people. That, that, that sometimes we, in talking about God, we have these expectations. Many of us in this room believe that Jesus will return in our lifetime. That's a good expectation. But it's also been an expectation of previous generations in the church. I believe that the expectation is wonderful and good, but I also believe that I have to be prepared for Jesus to return today, but I have to live in such, in order that I will live in such a way so as to be prepared to meet him. Now just stop and think about that for a moment. Being prepared to meet God. Being, living in such a way, being right with other people, so that when he returns, I am prepared. That is his expectation of me. Doesn't mean that I'm sinless. My sin was dealt with on the cross. But it does mean that as much as is possible, that Danny Ramos will be right with others and that he will be right with God. That, when I think about Christ returning, is what that expectation means to me. But what is God's expectation of me? You know, we went through a very difficult time in uh, 2020, and I was reliving it with a couple of people, and 
we were, uh, I had a meeting yesterday, and we were talking about the way it was. There was a lot of uncertainty. I don't know if you remember. There was a lot of uncertainty, and, and there was a lot of speculation as to what this virus, you know, what, what it would do, and there was a lot of, of information coming from all over the place, and, and, and I saw people were getting upset, and I think rightfully so. So, you know, I said, I, was, I would pray, and, and, and I don't hear God. I mean, I have ideas and thoughts, and I go, well, that could be Danny, or that could be the Lord, but I'm not quite sure. And I remember one morning while I was thinking, Lord, how do I deal with all these people looking to the church, looking to a pastor? And I'll remember that he gave me this verse, Micah 6, 8. For he has shown you, O man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you? but to do justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with thy God. And i got to tell you, that verse has, has provided a sense of light or guidance through me for me, not only through a pandemic, but also now in my latter years. Danny, what does God expect of you? But to do justly, that is to bring justice into each and every situation that I possibly can. But to do justly, to bring God's God's justice into every situation. Let me tell you how I see that. I see that God in the Old Testament expected Israel to take care of the widow, the orphan, and the stranger in the land. Another way to say that is to bring justice or treat people rightly who have no power, who have no influence, and to love mercy. That whenever I can, whenever in my sphere of influence or the platform that I, I am on, is to show mercy to people. Don't judge them. Don't be harsh on them. Don't condemn them. But to be merciful to them. And then to walk in humility with God, I think, is evident. I don't know everything. And so humility with God. And so what we have here is God's expectation of Israel was that they would, by faith, receive their Messiah. Something that the leadership, for the most part, not 100%, but the leadership, did not do. Remember, um, in our passage, I want to read to you from from, uh, the verse before verse 12, which is 11. It says, And he entered Jerusalem, this is, after the triumphal entry on Sunday, and that he went into the temple, and when he had looked around at everything, it was already late, that is the conclusion of the day, and then he returned and went back out to Bethany with the 12 disciples. It says that when he looked around, it meant that he walked into the temple, that he studied what was going on. Listen, he studied what was going on, He sifted, he weighed, he weighed like a scale. He discerned. Jesus discerned what was taking place in the temple at the conclusion of that day. Now remember again, it's Passover. There are crowds of people, there are sacrifices being offered. And so then Jesus, Jesus, sifts and weighs what what he had seen in the temple. Consider Jesus' inspection. Think about the sacrifices, the sacrifices that were being offered upon the altar. That's what he saw. Think about the crowds of people. He studied the crowds of people. He studied the sacrifices. As we'll see in the next section, he studies the merchandising, the business, temple business, and the prayers. 
He saw ritual. In the future, the disciples would understand that the dead fig tree illustrated the need for a new covenant. Why? Because he saw the leaves, if you will, the leaves, if you will, but he also saw that there were no fruit. The people came and they went through the ritual, but they received no life. And so I believe that as we see the cursing of the fig tree, that what we're being told is that everything that Jesus saw pointed to the need of a new covenant. We'll finish up with that. A new covenant that we celebrate with bread and juice. It also speaks of the temple's destruction, I believe, in 70 AD by Rome. And as I told you previously in Luke chapter 19, verse 41, the Lord wept or lamented over Jerusalem, seeing that the fig tree, Israel, would perish. In our next section, verses 15 through 19, Jesus confronts corruption. Jesus cleanses the temple. Again, the basis of this is what he saw in verse 11. And they came to Jerusalem, and he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. Now, you understand that people were coming from all over the Roman Empire. And so they would come with currency, Roman currency. Unfortunately, on the Roman currency, oftentimes, uh, was a Caesar or a Roman god. And so that currency could not be used in the temple. It was, it was blasphemous. It was idolatry. And so if you would come with your Roman currency, you would come and you would exchange it. You would exchange it for temple currency, that which you could give as an offering, which was required as an offering. We read here of, of the pigeons that were sold. And when I think about the selling of pigeons, I think about within the Levitical law, within the sacrificial system, a pigeon is something that would be offered by somebody who was poor, who couldn't afford a more expensive offering. And so what Jesus does is he disrupts this business, maybe a business of convenience. In verse 16, it says that he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. And he was teaching them and saying to them, so this is the people, but also the religious leaders will hear this. Is it not written? When you read these words, is it not written? It is, does God not say in the scriptures? This is God's word. Is it not written, my house shall be called a house of prayer? What? Listen, for all the nations. But you have made it a den of robbers or thieves. Verse 18, and the chief priests and the scribes heard it and were seeking for a way to destroy them, for they feared him. They were intimidated by him. This is their home court. This is their home field. And Jesus is speaking truth, not only to the people, but to the religious leaders. But why did they fear him? Because all the crowd was astonished or marveled at his teaching. And when evening came, they, that is Jesus and the disciples, left or went out of the city. You know, John's Gospel, chapter 2, tells us that this is the second time Jesus purges or cleanses the temple. The first time he came, as he was studying again three years prior, at the beginning of his ministry, his popularity is just beginning to, to take off. He's, he's teaching, again, marveling. The people marvel at the content of his teaching. They say that he speaks with authority. He, he's casting out demons. He's healing the sick. 
All everybody's thinking, this is, this is possibly the Messiah. Again, when he, when he cleanses the temple the first time, it is again Passover. That, that redemption uh, theme is running through the hearts and the minds of the people. But what does Jesus do the first time? Is he take a cord or a rope and he begins to weave it together and he uses it as a whip to drive the people out. And here we are three years later and things are the same. Now, let me tell you something. When Jesus was present, there was a level of responsibility to obey and to follow his teaching. You know, sometimes we can become very comfortable with the Word of God, and we say, you know, that sounds good, that sounds good, that sounds good. And if we were honest, we're saying, I don't understand that. I don't really comprehend that, but this sounds good, this sounds good. With it comes a level of responsibility to obey. And so we are, here we are three years later, and Jesus remakes the temple again. I want you to see him confronting hypocrisy and corruption in the court of the Gentiles. This is where the non-Jews came to worship. The Jews, the, the Gentiles could come into the temple courts, but they couldn't enter into the temple. There was a wall. If they passed through that wall, they would die. They would be killed. It's one of the reasons the Antonia Fortress was built right beside the temple. It was an elevated building from which the Romans could watch all the activity that was going on. And they had an understanding with the Jews that if a Gentile enters into the temple, it will be lawful for you to take their lives. Seems very severe, and it was. So Gentiles who want to worship God come and see the temple at a distance, and in the middle of the court where they came to worship was this business, was this commerce, was this enterprise. And we see now Jesus' anger where he says in verse 17, Is it not written... Is this not God's word? My house shall be called a house of prayer, a temple of prayer for who? For all the nations. I think what we see here is God's desire to encompass all peoples. As a matter of fact, he, when, when he calls the court of the Gentiles my house, he upgrades the court status to the temple itself or where God lived. Let me read to you from Isaiah 56, verse 6. In the, and the foreigners who join themselves to the Lord to minister to him or to serve him, to love the name of the Lord and to be his servants, everyone who keeps the Sabbath and does not profane it and holds fast to my covenant. Listen to verse 7. These I will bring. This is God speaking. These I will draw. These I will bring to my holy mountain. You hear God saying, I want the nations to come to me. I want the nations to worship me. I want to include the nations and the blessings that I have for Israel. These I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar, and my house shall be called a house of prayer for all peoples. I, and I wonder... I wonder if we would appreciate, certainly, certainly we're not in the old covenant and we're not in a sacrificial system, but I wonder if we would for a moment think about the nations today, whether the nations are geographically, geographically distant and outside our borders or people who come from the nations to this country for so many different reasons, if we would have a heart that would be receptive for them to come here 
that we would see that the nations are being brought to us to share the gospel, that we would see that those who come here generation after generation after generation come looking for a better life as we would see them as God drawing them to this place to hear the gospel. It was a number of years ago I was working uh, with a couple and we were, we were done. It had been a series of meetings and there was premarital counseling and they were going to get married. And I asked the gentleman, I said, tell me your story. And he said, um, he said, you know, uh, my family fled Vietnam after the war. And we were, brought, we were brought here. And then I was curious because I was a paper boy at that time. I was a paper boy out on Camp Pendleton. And we'd be dropped off behind the mess halls. And we would sell newspapers to the, uh, to the Marines as they were coming out. And I, and I said this. I said, I remember. I remember that. He said, yeah, we, we came to Camp Pendleton and, and, you know, in various parts of the United States, different areas, and, and, and they processed us. And I go, can you, can you answer a question for me? And he goes, sure. I go, why did it seem like the camps were erected quickly, the people came quickly, and then they disappeared quickly? And he said, this is what happened. So we came to the country, you know, he said, we... We wanted a better life for our kids. My parents wanted a better life for me. Listen to what I'm about to say. And he said, we had to wait until someone, a group or a family would sponsor us. And he said, basically what happened is this. The reason we disappeared so quickly. He says, because churches, Christian churches, began to sponsor and adopt families. And he said, Danny, they brought us into their homes. They brought us into their churches. This is where I became a Christian. And they helped our families get established in America. And our first exposure to America were people who believe in Jesus. I think that if we, the church, have the same heart as God, We will see those who come here, and obviously some who are missionaries go there, but we will see that as an opportunity for us to engage and to to befriend and to encounter people who are simply looking for a life that is better for their families. So we hear Jesus speaking to the religious community. He says, but you, verse 17, have made it a den of robbers. What had happened was something that God meant for good. The religious leaders had in their greed were hindering Gentiles from coming to God. In verses 20 through 25, we'll conclude with the Jesus points to a new covenant. Jesus opens the door for everyone, all nations, all people, to enter the new covenant by faith. On the screen you should see a quote by D.A. Carson. When he speaks of the new covenant, he says, as our better mediator, Jesus is our mediator, Jesus is our high priest, as our our better mediator, Jesus' sacrifice is utterly sufficient. 
It doesn't have to be repeated year after year. And that is reference to the old covenant where the high priest would offer the sacrifice year after year. Read along with me again, in verse, beginning verse 20, where Jesus points to new covenant. And as they passed by in the morning, so this is Tuesday in the morning, Jesus and the disciples passed by. They saw the fig tree withered away at its roots. And Peter remembered and said, Rabbi or teacher, look, he's bringing Jesus' attention. The fig tree that you cursed is withered. And again, the idea is that to its very roots in a short period of time, less than 24 hours. And Jesus answered them and says, now he's introducing the idea. Now this is an ongoing lesson for them. This isn't the first time they hear about faith. But he says, have faith in God. Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, listen to these words, it will be done for him. Verses 24 and 25. Therefore I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you receive it and it will be yours. And whatever you stand praying, I'm sorry, whenever you stand praying, forgive. And if anything, if you have anything against anyone, so that your Father who is in heaven may forgive you of your trespasses. So Jesus and the disciples are heading back into Jerusalem. We're almost done. Peter sees the fig tree, sees it in a withered state, and he draws Jesus' attention to it. Again, within the minds of all the people who initially heard the story, they would have thought, this fig tree is symbolic of Israel. Now, they're looking back. They are a part of the, the, the new covenant. And so Jesus responds to Peter's question by pointing to something new. The Jews had, had thousands of years of sacrificial system. They were the people of God. They were, they were rescued by God. They were corrected by God. And Jesus says, I'm going to start something new. There is going to be something new. And he says, speaks of faith or trusting in God. And then when he speaks of the mountain, they were literally standing on the Mount of Olives. And as they were pointing westward, looking westward, they saw the mount, the Temple Mount. And Jesus said that if you trust in God, you, if you have faith, you can speak to this mountain, the mountain they were speaking on. The other interesting thing is, is that due east, if they were to look due east, they would have saw the Dead Sea. He said, listen, you can speak to this mountain, it will be lifted up, and it will be cast into the sea. And what Jesus was saying was that by faith, our greatest obstacles can be removed. And my friends tonight, in conclusion, our greatest obstacle is the sin that stands as a barrier between you and God. But that if we trust in Jesus, that barrier will be Removed. Some would refer to this as hyperbole. That is an overstatement in order to make, in order to make a point. On the screen, you'll see a quote: "The law was our pedagogue, or our teacher, our babysitter, our guardian until the coming of Christ." Quote is by Thomas Schreiner. 
The new covenant is realized with God living in us. God is no longer in a temple. There is no longer a need for further sacrifice. There is no longer need for continued ritual. There is no longer need for Gentiles to travel or for Jews to travel to a specific location. Because now the Spirit indwells you. Now He's taken up residency within you. This is the new covenant. Your sins are forgiven by the death and the resurrection of Jesus. And God now takes up residency within you. And as he does, he changes and transforms our nature and our character, listen, to become exactly like Jesus, very much a process. And listen, and not human effort. Salvation will come through faith. In Jeremiah chapter 36, 26, the prophet spoke of this covenant when he says, And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will give you a responsive spirit. The new or better covenant would be experienced by faith or trusting in Jesus. We see the principle of faith in the life of Abraham in Genesis chapter 15, verse 6. And it says, And he, Abraham, believed the Lord, and, and he, God, counted it to him as righteousness. And the same principle is true tonight. God counts it as righteousness. He counts you as righteous in Christ Jesus based on the fact that you have placed your trust in him. I'm going to close tonight before we take communion by reading to you from Ezekiel 36. And the reason I'm reading to you these Old Testament passages is because Jesus would have expected all the religious leaders to have understood this truth or this principle. In Ezekiel 36, we begin in verse 34. The words sound very similar to Jeremiah, where Ezekiel says, For I will take you out of the nations. Again, they had been scattered. They had been scattered amongst the nations. But God said, I will take you out of the nations. I will gather you from the countries and bring you back to you into your own land. I will sprinkle you clean uh, with clean water on you, and you will be clean. This is the idea of what they would do with the sacrifice. They would wash it. But God says, I'm going to wash you. I'm going to pull you near. I'm going to gather you to myself. I will cleanse you from your impurities and from all your idolatry. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. The terminology is just like Jeremiah. And I will put my spirit, capital S, in you and move you to follow or obey my decrees or my laws and to be careful to keep my laws. Then I will live in the land. Then you will live in the land I gave your ancestors and you will be my people. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Maranatha Chapel. If you haven't already, please subscribe for weekly messages. Feel free to share this podcast and join us for our midweek revive service held Wednesday evenings. Visit our website at www.maranathachapel.org for more information.